0: Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook livestream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Enjoy the Bible study. This whole section really goes through uh, verse 11 Uh, next week Lord willing we'll look at the the rest of this but discipline I'm just reading now what I put down here discipline is vital in the life of a child and that's when we're talking about uh, earthly families when we're talking about God's family but God clearly instructs us to discipline our children to withhold discipline is to invite disaster into a child's life. In the same type of way, discipline is vital in the life of God's children. All discipline is ultimate, ultimately for the benefit of the recipient, certainly when it's God's discipline. Now, sometimes discipline that parents meet out is it's not so much discipline but anger, uh, and, and that's not discipline. But when God does it, it's always for the ultimate benefit of the child. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 is specifically addressed to these Jewish people who are truly saved. These are not the possessing believers. These are truly saved people. It admonishes them that God, who is their heavenly father, will discipline them if they go back to a religious system that has ended and was only temporary until Jesus came as Messiah. And We're not going to look at those verses uh, jeremiah thirty one talks about the new covenant that would be implemented implemented jesus did that galatians three ephesians chapter two talks about the law being done away with and god establishing uh, the church when we're talking about going back to a religious system that was done away with uh, actually it's even worse than that because there was an admixture of uh, mosaism and judaism judaism being the religion of the rabbis a mosaism being the teachings of the word of god what god had given in the mosaic system so in essence it's really going back i don't know if i want to use the word false religious system but certainly a religious system that was done away with so it, and and the to extrapolate from this just to throw out this thought if these believers were in danger of discipline uh, and go if they would go back to uh, mosaism slash judaism uh, what about believers today who might be truly saved who would think or consider going back to an apostate religion catholicism for example or anything like that what would god do to them in the way of discipline if they're truly saved? verses five and six which we'll look at shortly quotes from proverbs 3 11 and 12 where it says there my son despise not the chastening of the Lord neither be wary of his correction for whom the Lord loves he corrects even as a father the son in whom he even as a father the son in whom he delights so God has always disciplined his children and we're going to look at discipline uh, tonight at least get started at it and uh, the place that discipline discipline Plays in the life of a child of God. So verses 5 through 7. And you have forgotten the exhortation. Which speaks unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth, disciplines. And scourgeth every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Now, there's a whole lot there. But it starts out in the first phrase. Ye have forgotten the exhortation, which speaks unto you as unto children. What What he's communicating to them here is that what has been told them in the past has literally become kind of like out of thought. Uh, out of mind. Uh, I know that's a it's a play on uh, you know the usually usual phrase there, but they had uh, stopped thinking about God in, in their life and doing what God wanted. And, and when you put God behind you, ultimately it just leaves your mind, if you will. Uh, it, it it just you know you don't think about it. It's out of thought, out of mind. Uh, they've forgotten the exhortation. Which speaks uh, on to you as uh, on children, and this is speaking here to the Jewish believers and warning them: Don't go back to the old system. If you do, you're truly saved. If you go back, you're going to be disciplined. So don't forget what I've told you all along. Now, what he's saying here, and this is something important: Believers need to be constantly reminded about the basics of God and our faith. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 12 and 13, and before I even read that, in in the first part of of that chapter, it talks, uh, it's it's addressing believers, and God just tells us through Peter some of the blessings that he has for believers, that we've been justified uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been set apart. He's given us divine power. He's given us all kinds of of blessing. But then he says in verses 12 and 13, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, in this body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Twice remembrance is used. And they understood the basics. They understood the truth of the gospel. They understood uh, that they, would be, they were children of God as a result. But there's that need to constantly go back and remind us about the basics. Uh, one of the purposes, I think, uh, of communion, uh, the Lord's table, uh, it, it makes us remember, makes us reflect. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, we remember what Jesus has done uh, for us. So there's a very important part in a believer's life of constantly rehearing the basics. And certainly you don't want to hear it every Sunday, 45 minutes, a message every Sunday and the same thing. But uh, a regular, constant reminder of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, is what it's saying here. Then in the second part, it says this, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Chastening would be discipline. Now, the Greek word here is literally to care little for, to regard lightly, make small account of it. Chastening, discipline, in other words, is not something we should rebel or get angry about or lightly dismiss. Uh, so if, if we are being disciplined by God. Don't slough it off. Because there's a. Uh, there's a progression and we'll see that. In God's discipline. Of his children. Just as there's a discipline. Of our children. You know When we discipline our children. Uh, You want your child to respond positively quickly. You don't want them to lightly dismiss the um, seriousness of the issue. Uh, But sometimes they do. And and then you've got to go to a stronger form of, of, of discipline. God is saying the same thing. Don't lightly dismiss this. Don't despise it. Don't slough it off as not important. Uh, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor uh, faint when thou art rebuked of him. Rebuke is, uh, uh, (coughs) to faint is to relax, to faint. Uh, In other words, again, treat it seriously. Treat it seriously is what it's saying. Then it says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourgeth every son whom he receives. Now we're going to see that certainly when we get to verse 8 again. But notice what it says. God uh, chastens everybody he loves. Now this is in a familial relationship, a family relationship. And the last part of this uh, phrase, uh, or or this verse, verse 6, which says he scourgeth every son whom he receives. So if you're a child of God, are you going to have discipline? Yes. Every single child of God will be disciplined. And actually in verse 8, when we get there next week, it'll actually tell us if you don't have discipline, the eloquence of the King James says, then you're a bastard. In other words, God's not your father. Every single child of God he loves. Every single child of God will be disciplined. Now, there are three steps of God's discipline of his children. The first step is conviction of sin. And we can compare these three steps. And there are three C's here. Conviction of sin chastisement, which comes from the passage we're in tonight, and casket, death. When, when, when an earthly father or mother, parent, disciplines their child, you can do the first two steps. Conviction, First John 1, 9, when it comes to us as children of God, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness the first part of discipline is when we rebel when we disobey it's not even so much a rebellion at this point it's just a disobedience the spirit of god will convict us of that sin he knows every time we disobey because he is where he's dwelling within us he knows and he's god also the Holy Spirit. Uh, he knows what you're thinking. Certainly, He knows what you say. He knows where you go. Uh, he knows everything uh, about you in every way. And when you break one of the commandments, when you disobey God, the first step of discipline, He will convict you of that sin, where you'll start feeling guilty. Even if you don't know it's a sin, maybe you're a new believer. Well, some way God's going to get you the information. Maybe it's through a message preach. Maybe it's through a piece of Christian literature. Uh, whatever the case might be, that hey, you know, you've sinned, and you need to get right with God. Now we do the same type of thing with our children. When your child does something wrong, you confront that child and you convict that child. You'll say, Johnny. That's wrong. Don't do that again. Or you'll be disciplined. You'll be punished. Well, hopefully, Johnny does what? Yes, Mom. Yes, Dad. And doesn't do it again. Well, that's the conviction stage. That's the stage of the Holy Spirit. And God God gets his message across. God gets his message across. Years ago, I, I, it's, I think it's been a while since I've told this story, and, and some of you may remember okay. it. And Cheryl probably does for sure. But years ago, um, I was counseling a new Jewish believer, a woman. I don't remember her name now. This, the, and um, she had just come to the Lord, and she was living with a guy, and the guy she was living with was uh, was an outlaw the motorcycle gang the outlaw gang and um, so I started counseling her and they were living together out of marriage and I didn't address it right away with her I wanted to get to know her a little bit and that type of thing but finally I, I you know, turned to that passage in John about the, the woman and living adultery and so on go and sin no more and I said I got to share something with you. and I I started reading the passage and and she stopped me right toward the end of the passage and she said, you don't need to tell me anything. You did not need to go on anymore. She says, that's me. I'm living in sin and I know I need to leave. I know I need to get out of the relationship. But I've been living with this guy for whatever, eight years, ten years, twelve years, that type of thing. I didn't have to tell her; she had already been convicted by God that the relationship she was in was not good, it was a sinful relationship, that she needed to get out of it. And, and when she was first saved, she had so much joy. If you would have met her, and I wish I had met her. this is going back to the eighties, so, you know, you know, since I just turned seven. You know, whatever that age is, you know, yeah. as the, as the mind goes, you know, but anyway, um, she had so much, it, it was just, some, you, you, you meet a new believer, they're just bubbling over with joy and just, you know, they're just, that was her, you know, it's just uh, it's a joy to be around her because of just the joy that she had and the, uh, the rejoicing and you could see it in her face, you could see it in her countenance, you could see it uh, in her life. Um, well, Ultimately, um, we moved the uh, discipling time to to her house, her and her boyfriend, and and that was uh, we we met at a neutral place initially, and um, we Cheryl and I weren't even married at the time, were we? No, so this is early '80s. Maybe the 70s. Yeah, it could be the sense. It's a mind thing. I know, exactly. Yes, I know. No, she's right, probably. <laughs> anyway, so I I wanted to take it over to their place. So maybe I, Chuck, Chuck was his name. Chuck was his And Ellen. Chuck and Ellen. Um, and I wanted to influence Chuck, hopefully. So we moved over there, and, and Chuck was. Uh, if you know I I didn't know at that time I found out uh, he was a one percenter you know what a one percenter is in the biking world so one percenter is a very few people Uh, somewhere on his body he would have one percent tattooed to become a one percenter you had to kill somebody he was a one percenter and Chuck was about six foot four about 240, 250 pounds, rippling muscles, and that type of thing. And woe is me. So when I went in, when I went into the in the first time, uh, and, and he was dressed like like an outlaw, like a biker, you know. Um, I would say like Bob, but no, not he was wor- you know, different than Bob. Um, the denim on, you know, picture a biker, you know, type of thing. And you know, with a, he had a beard like Bob, but anyway. Um, when I went in there the first time, you know, there was a shotgun next to the door, and um, we sat down and uh, he was drinking a beer, and uh, he offered me a beer, I said, no, I don't, no, I don't want a beer, I don't drink, you, know, you can keep it, thank you. Well, he was, a, he was totally offended. He, he, was, he was trying to be friendly, hospitable. I didn't accept his hospitality. Well, the next week when I came back, he, he, he had gone specially out to buy some Christian music to put on while I was there. And as we started the, the Bible study, and he always sat in on it, um, he had this, it was terrible, it was just bad. And I said, what is that playing? So said, that's terrible. He said, can, can you can, please take that away? Yeah, you know, turn it off. He, he was, he t- later on at the end, well, you know, he was not pleased. So, anyway, the ultimately she didn't leave him and she lost all of her joy. She became very, very sad. Now, years later, uh, when we went, Cheryl and I went back, and that's when Cheryl met ultimately Chuck and Ellen at a Bible study. We went back to Florida from California. Uh, and this is three, four, five years later teaching the Bible study. And there was this big guy who came in, about six foot four, six foot five, 240, 250 people. Clean shaven, hair was cut, nice shirt on, pant, nice pants and all. I, I, was, I don't recognize this guy from the Bible studies. I, I, it's a Bible study I taught in the past. And then he said hello, and I recognized his voice. It's Chuck. And Chuck got saved um, in that. And uh, he told me after he, was, he said uh, when I got saved, he said I just felt I needed to get cleaned up, and he did. But he said I went back to the outlaw. I'm telling more of the story. I really need to. And he said uh, I walked into the outlaw lair or whatever it's called with my Bible, and uh, sat down. And all of these guys were lo- you know, they they didn't recognize him because he was cleaned up. And, and 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 he's and he's and he. The, he picked up the Bible. He started to speak, and they recognized his voice. He shared the Lord with them. And he said, you want to know what's tough? It's not two or three of you picking on somebody, one person, smaller or whatever, and beating them to a pulp. Tough is taking this Bible and sharing Jesus with you. Anyway, he told me that when I wouldn't didn't want to listen to the Christian tape, he almost made me eat it. Uh, he he was so offended Uh, I turned down his beer and then I didn't like his Christian message but the whole point Ellen they ultimately got married um, but she had lost a lot of her joy because she knew she was in sin and wouldn't get right Um, and when we have discipline with our children uh, if they don't get right that fellowship is broken that joy is broken so the first thing of discipline that God does like we do with our children is conviction and someone has said we need to keep short accounts in other words we we regularly sin, so we need to regularly be confessing our sin you don't have to pray out loud you can pray silently to God God I shouldn't have done that forgive me or whatever you that keep short accounts confess your sin Um, that that fellowship remains and that's all of what first John chapter one is about. But the second stage of discipline we find in verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourgeth every son whom he receives. Now, scourging or chastening is a a more severe form of discipline. When we do it with our children, um, especially in their formative years, uh, we need to use a Rod, a switch, you know, not a two by four. Uh, we need to spank. You know, as they get older, you know, and uh, hopefully the rebellion or re- becomes less and less because if it gets to the chastening point, you're rebelling. You're rebelling. Um, and God will discipline us, scourge us, chase us in a much more uh, heavy way, and we'll look at some of those. Second um, Samuel, look at Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12 in verses 1 through 7. you know the story. David who was the king of Israel um, he committed a couple of sins there we saw this beautiful woman woman uh, sunbathing on the top of a rooftop in the city of David and uh, Bathsheba and so he called for her uh, sexual relationships then, then then he had her husband Uriah murdered sent him to the front of the lines in war. That was a death sentence, the people in the very front. So he was guilty of a couple of, of acts of sin, rebelliousness. Verse one And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the rich, the one rich and the other poor. So he's giving him a uh, what we would call a parable, I guess. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing. Except for one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. So you have this rich man with all these flocks, all these herds, and then you had one poor man with one little lamb. There came a traveler unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So a traveler comes, instead of the rich man taking a lamb from the, the multitude of, of, of sheep, lambs that he had from his herds, said, no, nah, I'm not going to use any of my wealth, any of my goods, any of my lambs. I'm going to take this one little lamb that belongs to this poor man. And dressed it and gave it to the traveler to eat. David didn't like that, verse 5. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man that had done this thing shall surely die. Righteous indignation. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He'll die. And he's going to repay this poor man fourfold, four lambs. And then Nathan kicks him in the gut, as it were, David. He says to David, you are the man. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. And it goes on, and you took this one man's wife, and then had him killed. You are guilty, and discipline's going to come upon you. Now, turn with me to Psalm thirty-two. And, wh- and what we have in this passage, without reading on, um, well, well, before we go to Psalm thirty-two, let, let's let's read on down a little bit. Um, Look at verse 12, in 2 Samuel uh, 12. For thou didst secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And everybody's going to know what's happening, David, because you're the king. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, be by, it, by, because by this, great, by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So because of your sin, the enemies of God can blaspheme. Your sin is forgiven because you've confessed your sin, but the result of your sin is this child will die. Well, Nathan departed on his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bear unto David, which would be Bathsheba. And it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child. David fasted, went in, lay all night upon the earth. The elders of the house arose, went to him to raise him up from the earth. He would not. Neither did he eat bread with him. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, the child was, while the child was yet alive, we spoke on him. He would not hearken unto our voice. How will, he, how will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? What, how's he going to respond now? When the, when the child was sick, he wouldn't even talk to us. Now if he finds out he's dead, he's just going to go bonkers. How, what are we going to do? When David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. David then arose, washed himself, Eight, and so on. Look at verse 21. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat. And he, David, said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No shall I go to I shall go to him but he shall not return to me David was a believer a child of God where is David going when he dies heaven so if he's going to go where the child is then where is the child heaven infants children who die at that age are under the grace of God and go to heaven but but here's the point I want I I I want you to get From the time of the conception until the birth of the child is roughly how long? Nine months. From the moment that child was born, he was very sick and for seven days. So we're talking about roughly a nine-month period before that child died. Okay. Now, during that nine-month period, David is ruling. David is sitting on the throne. And externally, everything looked fine. But turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And we will read just the first few verses, maybe through verse 5. This is Psalm of David. Here's what he said. This is the psalm of David when he confessed his sin before God and God forgave him. But him telling us what it was like prior to that. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity and whose whose spirit there is no guile, no deception. Then look at verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand, God's hand, was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin how long of a period well let me let me start from the back end at what time p- point did david confess his sin we know that from that first samuel second samuel passage when nathan came to him remember and it's right before the child was born or at the birth right around the child's birth so for how long was david hiding his sin Nine months. Nine months. Outwardly, he was sitting on the throne. He was ruling. Everything looked no different than it was at any other time. Inwardly, though, what was David like? Verses 3 and 4. His bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. God was disciplining him. In this case, it was chastisement. And it was a very devastating, heavy hand of God on him for what he had done. He, just, he was miserable. He faked it on the outside. But internally, he was miserable. And he was very close to the point of death. Remember what Nathan said to him when he confessed his sin? You will not die. He was very close to dying, but when he confessed his sin, he was forgiven and he didn't die. But here's the the, the chastisement stage uh, that that took place in uh, the life of David. Uh, In Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is another psalm that David writes around the events that took place in uh, with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah and and all of this type of thing. Here's his prayer. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. I've murdered. I've committed adultery. I've lied. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. He couldn't get away from it. Because the Spirit of God's hand was what does it say in Psalm 32? Heavy upon it. He couldn't shake it, he couldn't run from it. There's, he couldn't go far enough, he couldn't go high enough, he couldn't go deep enough. Uh, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, he was very, very uncomfortable. For I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now, here's the sin of confession. Who else had he sinned against? Uriah, Uriah, for one, certainly. Uriah's in the grave now. Uriah Uriah was was at the front of the battle and killed. He murdered him, in essence. Who else did he sinned against? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. And then the child who would die, you know, and the, and the nation of Israel. But when he gets right with God, who who is he who's the only focusing on? God. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And when we confess our sin, we're agreeing with God that what we have done is sin and confessing it, and he did that. Now, we don't need to move on uh, in this passage, but here's strong discipline, strong chastisement. And in this case, it was just in, in, in internal, um, dep- you'd call it depression, you could, you know, he couldn't get away from it. And internally, he was a mess. He was just a mess uh, for nine months in doing it. Um, So God will will take that second step of discipline. If we don't confess our sin, the second step is much heavier form of discipline. Initially, it's like we would say to our child, hey, don't do it. But If that child turns around and does it again, then you do a much more severe type of discipline. Spanking, you know. Some people use timeouts at that occasion. That's a fine occasionally, but but don't if you you know last week if you spare the rod, rod you spoiled the child. You know Benjamin was who was it, Spock that uh, the doctor years ago you know ruined our society because we have a, we have a, a generation of children who are who are spoiled because they were never spanked. Um, and yes, I said that liberals. But anyway, <laughs> but see God can do a third step of discipline that we can't do Uh, first John uh, 5 16 and 17 and casket if a man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death so stop there for a second so if you see a brother or sister-in-law sinning a sin which is not unto death, you're to ask you to confront that brother, sister, uh, hopefully they will repent, but what, the, what this is telling us is not every sin that we do is a sin unto death. There are sins that we will not be killed for, that we will not die as a result of. David had committed a sin that ultimately could have led to his death. Sin unto death. Now, this verse goes on, or these verses go on, and it says, there is a sin unto death. This portion of the word of God is speaking to believers. Children of God. There is a sin unto death. Not every sin is a sin unto death, but there are sins that we can commit that will ultimately lead to death. To our death. Then it says this I do not say that he shall pray for it. So if you see a brother, one you consider a brother, sinning and doing something uh, so sinful that you believe it's a sin unto death, that you believe that this person is so uh, dragging the name of Jesus in the mud. You know, your 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 uh, your desire, your thoughts might be, Lord, take that person home. Just he, he's, he or she is just destroying your testimony and and the sin. Just kill him and take him home. We're not to pray that. Uh, if you see a brother or a sister uh, sinning on committing a sin unto death, don't pray for it. And then he says this, all unrighteousness is sin. So all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not unto death. So when it comes to us as believers, children of God, there are sins that we can commit that are sins unto death. And there are sins that we can commit that are not sins unto death. Now, thankfully, most of the sins that we commit Are those sins that are not unto death. Now turn turn your page over. What are some of the sins unto death that we can find in the Bible? Well the first one is occult activity. Go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 31. In 1 Samuel chapter 31, if I can get the pages turned, we're going to start in verses 3 through 5. This is with King Saul and the Philistines. The battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul, verse 4, unto his armor bearer, draw thy sword thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, <coughs> for he was very afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword, and he died with him. Now, in our vernacular today, what Saul did, we would refer to as what? Suicide. You take your own life. Saul took his own life. The battle had gone bad. He didn't want to fall into the hands of the enemy. Uh, very concerned that uh, not only would they kill him, but the abuse that they would do to him, the torture uh, prior to killing him. So he, 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 the armor bearer wouldn't do it, so he fell on his own sword. He took his own life. Now go forward with me to First Chronicles chapter ten. See when we read the account as it happened, Saul decided to take his own life because of the circumstances. Right? That's that's what the account said. But I want you to see it from God's perspective. We lift. We looked at it initially. As it were, from a horizontal perspective, from Saul's perspective, uh, the battle going bad. I don't want to fall under the uh, to the Philistines. What they're going to do to me? Uh, kill me? The armorer. He asks. Uh, he doesn't. So he kills himself. That's the horizontal perspective. But I want you to see the vertical perspective uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter ten, in verses thirteen and fourteen. So Saul. Died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord. Now, there's a progression here. Saul died, not because the battle went awry, and he committed himself. He died because he disobeyed, broke the law of God. Right? Very clear. Which he committed, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not. Remember where Saul went wrong in not keeping the word of God? What had God told him to do? Kill everybody. Kill all the Amalekites. Kill the king. Kill the people. Kill the animals. Kill everybody. Well, um, did he do that? No. So Saul is confronted, and uh, as David says, um, you know, he you know, He he hears the bleeding of the sheep. And well, why didn't you kill everybody? I hear the bleeding of the sheep. And so what Saul actually says is, well, God requires sacrifice. So I wanted to keep the sheep the best for him for sacrifice. Well, that's not what God asked him to do. Kill everything. The first step that will lead to the sin unto death is disobeying the word of God. That's why when we are convicted of sin, we need to confess it. Because the first step that leads to ultimately the sin unto death is just not obeying God's word. What was the next step in the Saul's progression? And also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it. Remember what he did? He went to a... Uh, a necromancy uh, um, one who communicated with the dead which he got involved in the occult now that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back he never got right about breaking the word of God and doing what he did and and uh, you know all the battles and all the trials that he had with David he didn't like David and that type of thing but he ultimately got involved in in witchcraft in the occult And that was the last straw. That would ultimately lead to the next step, verse 14. He he went after the witch's advice, and he inquired not of the Lord. Now look at the last phrase. Therefore he slew him. Who is the he? God. God slew him and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. So from the horizontal view, who, who, who kills Saul? He, he, no, the horizontal view. Uh, the second Samuel. He, he did. He committed suicide. From the vertical, who killed him? God. Because he, he ultimately committed what the, the later scripture calls the sin unto death. And what, uh, he, he could have found forgiveness earlier, but when he got involved in the occult, that ultimately led to his sin unto death. Look with me, for example, um, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a uh, man in the Corinthian church, a believer. Corinth, Corinth had, the church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. In verse 1, we are told it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now, because it said he had fornication with his father's wife, more than likely this was not his mother, it was his stepmother. But he had fornication with her. The church was puffed up. Ye are puffed up. Ye have not rather mourned that he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I, for I verily, Paul says, is absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already. I've determined what needs to be done as though I were present concerning him that had so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. His sin unto death was sexual sin. And Paul says, we're going to turn this one. He's been turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But what happens with with his spirit? He's saved. He's a saved man. Our body goes into the grave but our spirit and soul go up into heaven if we're a believer. His sin on the death here was a sexual sin. Now, you can do a sexual sin and get right about it and be forgiven. But if you continue on in that, well next week we're going to look at that portion of it a little bit more. But sexual sin, a cultic activity, sexual sin These are two identifiable sins unto death in the Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Three of the identifiable sins unto death in the Bible are found, two of the three sins are found in the Corinthian church. Great church, right? Look at verse 26 through 30 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. This is the Lord's table. This is communion. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So if you drink it unworthily, believer, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, examine yourself before you eat that bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for he that eats and drinks unworthily, he repeats it again, drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, damnation not in the sense of going to hell, but damnation in the sense of physical sickness and physical destruction. Look at the next verse. For this cause, because they were abusing the Lord's Supper, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, die. The abuse of the Lord's Supper by a child of God can bring sickness and even death, the sin unto death, if you continue it. So the Lord's Supper is not something to trifle with. It's something to remember the Lord with and examine our lives. And there should always be a warning prior to communion, prior to the Lord's Supper. Because if you are drinking unworthily, if you're living in sin uh, as a believer, and, and you take—and and this is not for unbelievers. An unbeliever can partake of the Lord's Supper and, and nothing's going to happen. But if a believer is living unworthily, living in sin, practicing sin, and takes the Lord's Supper, he is in danger of, of God's judgment. Discipline, let me use discipline, better word. Sickness, even death. There's at least three identifiable occurrences in the Word of God that led on to the sin of death occult activity, sexual sin, and abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, we're not going to turn there. You can look at it later, but Ananias and Sapphira is not a sin unto death. Remember what Ananias and Sapphira did? They held back money from the Lord, and they didn't give it to the Lord. How many here have held back money from the Lord? Whatever reason you had, maybe you knew you supposed. You know, I, I need the money to pay the bills. You know, and uh, well, if it was not if holding back, we'd have more dead bodies in the church than live bodies. Um, you know, this was a different thing with Ananias and Sapphira. So one of the things, we need to be careful about judging another person's circumstances. The reason is that the same cir- circumstance of a believer's life can be present because of the tra- trial of faith, which is not disciplined because of sin. But there is a sin unto death that we can commit. If we don't obey the Word of God when we're convicted of it and continue in that sin, and we have one of the... One of the best illustrations I can give, and again, some of you have heard this, but you know I don't have that many illustrations when it comes to the unto death. Um, I had a good good friends couple. Um, Truitt, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie Truitt, and what was his wife's name? Ronnie and Linda Truett and uh, Linda became a believer and. and uh, and Ronnie was not. And they were, at that time, probably in their 30s, late 30s. Um, Linda was gorgeous. You know, uh, Ronnie was this you know, movie star type of person. He was extremely wealthy. Um, had his own business and that type of thing. Uh, I remember hour after hour witnessing to, 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 to Ronnie. Sometimes five hours at a time and we were friends and Linda was praying and everybody was praying. And, and When Ronnie came to the Lord we were just rejoicing and, and he became just excited about spiritual things. But it didn't last, his ex- not his salvation but his excitement. And after about six months he went back to the same lifestyle he was living prior to his getting saved. Running around with women, drinking. And he had this nice big yacht. This was southern Florida. He loved to take the yacht to the Bahamas and party with it there. And his wife was crushed. Well there was a mutual friend that was also witness to him and uh, Ronnie told Mike, he said, you know Mike, he said, I can do the same stuff now that I did prior to being saved with one difference. I said what's that I don't enjoy it anymore he was under conviction but Ronnie wouldn't give it up he kept on going if you know southern Florida this is where it was at the time it's called the Venice of America in the Fort Lauderdale area all kinds of canals Um, and there was one right near his home uh, the first time Ronnie came home at night driving, he drove his brand new Mercedes into the canal and uh, the police officer happened to come by and fish him out and saved his life. And A few weeks later, a month later, he took his big uh, Harley motorcycle and drove it into the car and the same police officer happened to come by and fished him out and saved his life. Um, and Ronnie still wouldn't get right with the Lord and still continued on in, in his sin and uh, and running around, and and we tried to tell him, he wouldn't listen to us, and, and then he had a ma- he had a he had a major heart attack. This is a, this is a man who was 38 years old, you know, the best of health, um, and he was his he lost 60 or 70 percent of the function of his heart. He had to carry around a uh, canister of oxygen with you know the breathing apparatus to get around. It slowed him down, but didn't completely stop him. It wasn't until shortly thereafter that Ronnie died. I have no question in my mind whatsoever that I'll see Ronnie in heaven one day when I get there. I believe he committed the sin unto death. He broke the word of God. He got into deep sin, sexual sin, and ultimately God took him home with him. Uh, There is a sin unto death. Discipline proves that God loves us. That verse goes on. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. Ronnie was chastened. He went through it. Now, he didn't get right like David did. And ultimately, it cost him his life on earth. But again, I I am 100% certain Ronnie is in heaven. Now, in light of all of what we've considered up to this point, <clears throat> um, the three steps of discipline in a child's life, I want us to consider James chapter 5. And James chapter 5 um, is, is such an abused, misunderstood uh, portion of the Word of God. You know, it talks about, and, and I've started out with verses 17 and 18 of verses 13 through 20 because seventeen and eighteen is the illustration that helps us to understand what's taking place in these verses you know you know briefly probably about james chapter five you know if a person is sick call the elders remember the elders come anoint the person with oil the prayer of faith should raise that person up right you've heard that you're familiar with that and and you're probably familiar with uh, people who have uh, the elders have gone and they've anointed the sick individual with oil uh, thinking that they're doing it based on James chapter five. Uh, I've been called a few I don't know how many times maybe two maybe three not a lot to do it and the very sick people and you know what the end result was every time. (laughs) Unfortunately yes Uh, the person died. Well, we misused the scripture. We didn't use it as it's here and understanding it. And the illustration helps us. Look at the illustration first. Seven. And by the way, this is one of the favorite verses for um, uh, faith healers, you know, and, and the faith healers, they have you know, the Benny Hens and all those. They have their crusades and come on down and uh, come on up and I'll heal you and we'll anoint you and I'll pray over you and you'll get healed. And it's not even what's talked about here. It's, it's not at all what this is all about. Look at the illustration. Elijah, Elias, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So Elijah is no different than we are, like passions. And and he summarizes the story here, the illustration. Consider Elijah. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain. Then he prayed that it would rain, and it rained. Now, there's much more to the story than the little that what we have here, and uh, and certainly the recipients of this letter would have understood. But but here's the background. <clears throat> First Kings 17.1 James five says Elijah prayed the rain was withheld with for three and a half years. In 1 Kings 17:1, Elijah, the Tishbite, who is of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, "As the Lord God of Israel is, before whom I stand, there shall not be no do nor rain these years, but according to my word." That happened. Now, the reason it happened is because God had promised judgment on the land of Israel if on the land, if Israel forsook God's covenant. Deuteronomy 28:23 and 4. And the heaven that is over thy head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust from heaven. It shall come down upon thee and thou until thou be destroyed. And so God says, if you break my covenant, if you go after other gods, if you don't follow my laws, I'm going to make heaven, the rain from heaven like dust, drought. That's the warning. Solomon ultimately would later uh, pray based on this promise. Elijah did the same thing. Uh, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee, if they pray, God said, towards this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou inflicted them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of the people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon their land where thou was given to the people for an inheritance if heaven is shut up if there's a drought happening and that's a judgment of God because they broken the covenant of God if the people confess their name and turn from their sin what will God do forgive the rain and then in second Chronicles 7 13 and 14 a very misused portion of Scripture uh, God told Solomon how the how the curse would be re- could be reversed <coughs> if I shut up heaven that there be no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land, if I send pestilence among my people, who's my people? Israel. If my people, is this American Christians? No. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, and then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land because I'll give rain if the people will repent. This is not a prayer. Second Chronicles 714 for America. If I've heard people claim that for America one time, I've heard it 50 times. Has nothing to do with America. Has everything to do with Israel. But it's them breaking the law of God. Go to the next page. 1 Kings 16, 30 and 33. King Ahab sinned more than any of his predecessors. The, the nation was wicked. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. The nation were very sinful, very wicked, very evil, led by their king. In First Kings 17, God disciplined the king and kingdom with drought. This is the time of Elijah. You know the story. In chapter 18 of First Kings, you have the prophets of Baal. You know that story probably. Well, but what did the people do when they were confronted? They repented. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord He is the God, the Lord He is the God. Then 1st Kings 18, uh, 41, 42, 45, Elijah prayed, and it rained again according to God's promise to Solomon. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a source, a sound of abundance of rain. Just as God promised back in to Moses and to Solomon and us, if if the people repent, I will give the rain. Elijah prayed as he knew God would fulfill his promise and it rained. What we have in James, in the first couple of verses, in verses um, 17 and 18, is this illustration. Now, I've summarized it. God had given command to Israel to not follow false gods, sinning against him, against God. If they disobeyed, God would send a judgment of drought, no rain. God promised when the people confessed their sin, he would restore the rain to the land. James used this illustration to explain what he is teaching on a personal level. In other words, God has given his children commands to be obeyed. See the steps of discipline above. Conviction, chastisement, casket. If a child of God's sin is of such a grievous nature, God will discipline that person with physical sickness. For example, 1 Corinthians 11, the abuse of the Lord's table. Or other means. And I could have added, and ultimately, the sin unto death, if it gets to that point. James is using Elijah as an example. And so, going back to verse 13 and 14 now, we looked at the illustration first. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So, if the circumstances in your life (coughs) have brought suffering, pray. If circumstances have brought rejoicing, sing. Now, this does not mean that when you suffer you don't sing and when you rejoice you don't pray it's in the context of what we're talking about here then fourteen through sixteen it says this is any sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the lord shall raise him up and if he have committed sins they shall be forgiven him Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now consider verse 14 first. If anybody is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The word sick is the Greek word asthenia. It means to be weak. Either emotionally, spiritually, or physically. But most often in Scripture, it is used of being weak physically. And the weakness here would be sickness. Now, I've just asked a couple of questions based on verse 14. Are there to be public meetings where people, sick people go forward for anointing and healing according to this verse? No. Are the elders of a church to visit the sick and anoint the sick person for healing no is the sick person to request that the elders come and anoint him for healing yes that's how it's done the elders don't do it on their own this is not a public venue type of thing the sick person is to call the elders to come, anoint him with oil to, for healing. Now, the elders are the elders of the church. The anointing oil itself is symbolic. It's, it, there's no healing properties. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I sh- we don't have any anointing oil in our, in our bookstore. You would not believe how many people have asked us to stock anointing oil. You go to Israel. You you can buy anointing oil in almost any tourist gift shop in in Israel, and they sell this little bottle of olive oil for four bucks or whatever it costs. You know, hey, you know, I'll sell you a bottle of little bottle from my stash at home. You know, they're they're ripping off my. There's nothing in that oil that you know. We will, as long as I'm here, we'll never stock anointing oil. It ain't gonna happen because there's nothing that is healing in the oil itself. Nothing whatsoever. Oil itself is symbolic of health and well-being. Verse 15, the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. If he have committed sins, they shall be giving him. Now, the word sick here is the Greek word kadno and is frequently used to mean severely sick in the physical realm this person is extremely sick to the point of imminent death so this is this is somebody who's on his deathbed as it were it matters not the age of this person and they're calling for the elders to come now the result of this prayer is that god answers prayer based on his promises but the sickness that he has And the prayer of faith will save the sick, deliver him, heal him. The Lord will raise him up, take away the sickness. Is sickness that is caused directly because of sins in his life. That's why it says at the end of verse 15, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The prayer of faith is not only the elders, but him confessing his sins. J.B. Meyer in his commentary on James suggests that verse 15 should read this way. If he has committed sins which have given rise to the sickness. See, his sickness is a direct result of sin, like what took place in the Corinthian church. Verses 15 and 16 infer a continual pattern of sinful practice in the life of this person look at verse 15 and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up and if he have committed sins they shall be forgiven him confess your faults one to another pray one for another that you may be healed the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much the use of the word healed here that she may be healed in verse 16 Eome is most often used in a physical sense in the New Testament. At least twenty-four out of the twenty-four out of the twenty-eight times, it speaks here in the context of physical restoration. The verse seems to speak more of prevention than correction, so one does not end up in the position of verses fourteen and fifteen that they're on their deathbed. But the prayer is confession of sin. Telling the elders, I have sinned, I have, first you're praying to the Lord, but confessing your sin to the elders, the elders praying then thus with you, Lord heal him as he's confessed his sins, and he will be healed, he will be delivered from that sickness. Turn your page over. Verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, So if any of them err from the truth, in other words, they've disobeyed God, they've gone away from the truth of the word of God, and and it's gotten to such a point that they are now near death because of their continuing sin. If somebody converts him, shows him his error, he confesses his sin, verse 20, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his way. This is a brother, this is a child of God. Which converts the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Death here is not spiritual death, it's physical death. Brethren are the subject here, children of God. They have erred from the truth, and the conversion is the realization of the sinful practice, confessing of it, and the sparing of this one from physical death. <clears throat> what these verses amplify. It are the previous verses on healing. The saving is from physical death, not spiritual death. And is written in the spirit of the restoration process that is dealt with in Matthew 18 Galatians 6:1. So Zoe to saved use here in James 5:15 and 20 suggests that James 5:19-20 summarizes what has been written earlier in 14 through 18. In other words, you're sick because you have been sinning? Call the elders Confess your sins one to another. They will anoint you with oil. And and they will pray for you. And because you have confessed your sins. That sickness will be removed. And you will be spared. And you will live. David. Was was confronted by an elder. If you will. Nathan. He was on the point of death. Remember what it said back then. After he confessed his sin. And thou will not die. But how was he internally? Psalm 32. Miserable. He was extremely close to death. But when he was confronted by the elder, quote unquote, Nathan, he repented of his sin and God forgave him and he was spared and the the joy of his salvation was restored. We didn't read on in Psalm 51. That's mentioned. Here, this individual. In James. When he confesses his sin recognizing that he is. Rebelled against God. And the elders pray for him with him, God spares his life. And raises him up. Physically. All of these verses that we've looked at here. In 13 through 20. Directly. Or indirectly. Deal with the issue of sin. The inference clearly is that the sickness is the result of a particular sin. Psalm thirty-two with David. 1 Corinthians eleven with the Lord's Supper. John, First John five sixteen, the sin unto death. The inference is clear that the suffering, the sickness here, is because of the ongoing sin in the life of this person. <coughs> the entire process here. Is one of God's disciplining hand to bring an unrepentant sinner back to him. Dr. Richard Mayhew in his book The Healing Promise. And much of this on James 5 comes from this book. Very good. Says the following in regard to this passage. When the condition of physical chastisement for unrepentant sin is dealt with according to James 5. The repentant Christian. Will be healed. Because there is no longer a need for physical chastisement. The healing may be instantaneous or over a period of time. The text doesn't say. But the healing will be complete. James 5 is not for just any Christian who is at the edge of death. I remember years ago, a lovely Christian lady loved the Lord, served the Lord, was dying with cancer. And she called for the elders to come and pray over her. I was in that group that went in the hospital. We prayed for her. There was no sin in her life that was of such a nature that she would die for. She just had cancer. We're all going to die one day. Could be being hit by a truck. It could be by cancer. We're all going to die one day. And if you're walking with the Lord, it's not the sin unto death. And we anointed her with oil. We prayed for her. And it wasn't much longer, a week, two weeks, I don't remember at this point, that she died. Because she misunderstood James 5. So did we, by the way, who went in there at the time. Because we should have instructed her that this is not for you. You're, You're not living in sin. You're not here because of a sin you've committed. This is for a rebellious child of God who is put in this position like the 1 Corinthians 5, the 1 Corinthians chapter 11 person. uh, We we can apply it to David in the earlier scripture and what he did, (coughs) the sin unto death. This is for that type of person. It's not just a blanket thing for anybody who gets sick. It's if they have sinned rebelliously. That was tough. If they call the elders, they confess that sin that I've been wrong, they're confessing it to God, they're telling the elders, they pray, God will remove that sickness and give them healing. Perhaps instantaneously, perhaps over a period of time, but they will be raised up to health and not die. This parallels God's instruction on discipline. Conviction, chastisement, and casket. And as an illustration of someone who is going through the chastisement stage and has committed or is in the process of committing the sin unto death, how that person can be spared. You don't pray that they are to die. You pray that they are to be delivered. And if they recognize their need, they can call you and deliver you. It is such an abused portion of scripture, but it's in, the, it's in the context of discipline and what God will do to heal his children. Any questions before we close? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and love, and uh, you discipline us because you love us, and all of your children have discipline. And Lord, we're not to faint, we're not to uh, get upset at your discipline, it, it's to—it's uh, for our good. And we are to respond positively by confessing our sin, we, we, none of us, none of us here should want to get to that point where we're at the, sin, the point of the sin of, of death. Lord, help us uh, to love you, to serve you, and the joy that comes with it. Bless our fellowship, bless the food, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or, would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919 275 4477. Shalom.